You're listening to The Frequency of Creativity with Melinda Harkerley. Welcome everyone to The Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art to see how art can bring beauty and understanding and life force energy into your life. Sign up for my newsletter at melindaharcurly.com. Today, I am really excited to talk about the groundbreaking art exhibit, Supernatural America, the Paranormal in American Art. And our guide through the exhibit is Dr. Robert Casalino. Welcome, Bob. Hi, Melinda. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And Bob, you work at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and you are the Patrick Anna Mae Butler Curator of Paintings. Yeah, that's right. And Bob, you're the creator of this exhibit. And why I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because the paranormal in art is a theme and a topic that has not been addressed in the art world. And I love that you are bringing awareness, bringing research, and a survey of a number of very accomplished artists in this field. And I think it's a really important exhibit, and it's the first of its kind. So my first question is, How did this come about? How did you conceive the idea? And what is your motivation in spending the amount of time that's required in developing this very professionally done exhibit? Yeah, my my good friend, the late uh, Walter Hamady, who is an artist, uh, a bookmaker, a collagist, he did all sorts of things. When people would ask him, how long did it take him to make something? He would say, my whole life. <laughs> and, you know, that was a, a you know, a, a typically funny Walter explanation of things. But in a sense, I understand where he's coming from, because I have been interested in this subject my whole life. There isn't a time when I haven't been fascinated by the supernatural or the paranormal and all its permutations. And I was born on Halloween. Um, (laughs) My maternal grandfather was born on Halloween. You know, it's always been there, but I've always kind of, I've always taken it seriously and have been fascinated when I've heard other people's tales of seeing ghosts or being in haunted places and feeling what that feels like in your body. And it was really through an artist named Ivan Albright, Melinda, that I became interested in in collecting imagery and uh, names of artists who I could tell from their interviews, their own words, or the imagery they were using were fascinated by the supernatural and were integrated into their art in some way. Um, It was Ivan Albright, who was based in Chicago for most of his career, whose work you can see largely at the Art Institute of Chicago, who had a profound experience in the First World War of being at a base hospital in France and drawing wounds of people who were his age, who were coming off the battlefield. And later, you know, he he spent most of his career examining the 
you know, the body, the human body and the sort of way it looks and feels and ages and grows. And people used to say all the time that Albright was only interested in death, decay and the vulnerability of the body. But if you actually look to what he says after that war experience, he's really profoundly in, in, inspired by that to look for the intangible inside the body that helps bring us back from catastrophic wounds and heal. But also, what is that intangible spark that brings consciousness and personality and animates the body? And he starts exploring different ways that people have historically written about that and thought about it in order to, in his own pictures, depict matter and spirit simultaneously, which is a difficult task for an artist. How do you visualize the intangible? How do you visualize the soul or the spirit? So after, you know, really thinking about him, I started to wonder what are the other ways and who are the other artists who are asking those questions? And Robert, um, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a short break here. And before we do, can you please share with our listeners where they can, you know, find out more information about the exhibit, look at some of the artwork and artists that are included? Sure. Uh, your listeners can go onto the Minneapolis Institute of Arts website, so artsmia.org, and look at the webpage uh, and explore that. Or uh, you can pick up the catalog, which is published by the Minneapolis Institute and the University of Chicago Press, which is the same title as the show. So the Super Supernatural America, the Paranormal in American Art. Thank you. Stay with us as we go so much more in depth and talk about specific artists and art and even well-known artists who um, address this theme in their artwork that you may not be aware of. So please stay with us. Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. If you're ready to transform yourself and transform the world through podcasting, we invite you to join us. We co-create a non-competitive, collaborative environment designed to support you as you step into your greatness. Go now to superpowerexperts.com and click on the Programs tab to get started today. We're back with the Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. Bob, I love that you were born on Halloween because that's my favorite holiday and around our house that we go all out for Halloween and really embrace all the fun of that holiday. Um, where I'd like to start is the first uh, section of the exhibit is called America as a Haunted Place. And what you address in that section is that haunting means so much more than ghosts and goes way beyond that. And what you're really dealing with is a cultural reckoning with us as Americans, our history and our past. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I use haunting and take my cues directly from the artists themselves in uh, representing that theme in the exhibition. Um, in two ways simultaneously, neither one nor the other, which is in a literal way, but also metaphorical. And I know that, you know, we sometimes think of one or the other and think that they are not sort of connected, 
But a lot of these artists and a lot of communities think of haunting in both ways and hold them together. And I think that it's important because um, while we may, you know, experience a situation where we feel the spirit of our ancestors or a loved one who we've just lost around us or something like that, I think that in all of the places that we live in what we now call the United States, <laughs> increasingly we are realizing that all of the histories that have happened, all of the events that have happened in the places where we are, and I keenly feel this in Minnesota, um, is sort of present somehow in our bodies, in the, the vibe of a place, in the way that we're connected and the way that we try to to live and look to the future. So this idea that we live in a haunted country uh, makes us ask, well, who are these ghosts? What do they want? Um, where did they come from? And I think a lot of the artists and myself included would say, these are ghosts from America's violent past, whether we're talking about slavery or we're talking about the genocide of Native Americans, that um, you know, are still present in affecting the way we interact with one another and sort of deal with daily life and have to be reckoned with in order to honor them, move on and try to figure out how we can heal as a society. And that's embedded in the fabric of how we got here in 2022. And I, I think artists have always dealt with this from different points of uh, history. And I think it's probably never been more keenly felt than the way we sort of think about our relationship to the past today. Wow. That was a lot of information <laughs> to unpack. And I love how you brought up the idea of how we were founded as a country and the events of the establishment of our country are still not dealt with and come out in many ways. And artists are an avenue to really address what's called an exhibit, these hauntings. Um, so in looking at the exhibit, there, there are a whole grouping and a topic that's called spiritual artists. And that's so close to my heart and so close to this podcast, mm -hmm. because as we were talking before um, the recording, a spiritual artist gives form to the unseen. It's a creative expression and trying to create in form maybe what is felt, what has been experienced. And also, in some cases, some of the artists have visually seen ghosts, uh, UFOs, extraterrestrials. So the exhibit addresses this broad range of approaches and by these spiritual artists. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I, I think it's important for your audience to know, um, all, all the listeners, that... Um, you know, the exhibition is arranged thematically, but there's art from the late 18th century to the present. And if they were to come to the exhibition, they'd see that the art from the past and the present is integrated so that it's like the past and the present are speaking to one another, which gets to the 
main sort of one of the main themes is this idea of spirit contact or contact with the otherworldly. So artists, as you say, are trying to make tangible these mysterious experiences they had through whatever means they have, you know, tools and and skills that they have at their disposal to to make a visual image about it. And I would say, you know, 90% of the work in the exhibition is by artists who we know had these experiences and so treats them seriously, takes what they have to say with, um, you know, uh, great curiosity and treats them with dignity and asks, you know, what are the broader implications for our communities, for creative practice in the case that you're talking about? So it's a broad range of stuff um, all around those different kinds of themes. So you're, you know, you might be surprised that people like James McNeil Whistler are in the exhibition or Grant Wood, but also spirit artists who, um, in the case of the, the ones who are in the show, are people who are making artwork often at spiritualist camps. So as part of the religion of spiritualism, and they're making imagery in trance states at seances as part of a sacred and spiritual practice um, to contact those in the other world. And the resulting image is through that process. So, you know, we might think of icons of, of the saints as the kind of, you know, religious uh, uh, art of Catholicism, for instance. And there's a lot of sort of broader, deeper meanings to those images. They're not just sort of portraits of imaginary people, they're real. But in spiritualism, uh, and there's a devotional practice that's connected with them, the the devotional art comes out of the ritual, and that's what these things are. And I'm trying to really center that notion that, you know, they are part of a ritual practice and a religious practice. And to the spiritualist, they are proof and evidence that there is life beyond the body. And that making through the body of the medium is what brings that out. Um, so in reading through the exhibition, um, I noticed that the artist gives credit and gives a name to the guiding spirit and talk a little bit about what there are two that um, are no longer with us in present form, but one artist gives credit to the well-known poet, William Blake. That's right. And, and another artist gives a credit to the impressionistic painter, Manet. Right. Yeah. It's the same artist. It's um, Francis Haynes McVeigh, who was active at Camp Chesterfield um, in Indiana, a spiritualist camp you can still go to. And she, uh, again, made, she made paintings and drawings and trance states during seances and where we know, as you point out, that these artists were able, these mediums were able to identify the spirit who is their guide, we credit them as authors on the labels in the show and in the catalog. And I, I think that's important because to these folks, that was a very real presence that was either, you know, they felt near their bodies or inside of their bodies, controlling their hands or guiding them or listening to them. In the case of William Blake, Francis Haynes McVeigh has this marvelous series of drawings from 1955 called Soul Travel Drawings that purports to show the path that a soul takes when it leaves the body and then gets to its destination. And there's automatic writing underneath the drawing that shows that it's William Blake's voice in her, her mind or in her body telling her what's going on while she's drawing. 
And sometimes you can see that Francis Haynes McVeigh has asked a question telepathically and then William Blake responds, which is, mm. it's funny. And it's also kind of, it's, it's fascinating because it's a way into her process. Mm. And there's an intimacy there that you don't normally sort of get to have a little window on unless you were actually present there. So, you know, in some cases, people like um, Marion Sporbush, another spirit artist, didn't have a particular spirit that she was able to identify. It was more like a chorus of spirits who were controlling her hands, and she referred to them as they. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you just talked about automatic writing. Mm -hmm. and Also, there is artwork, and I believe it's graphite on paper, that is automatic painting or automatic drawing. Right. Yeah. Um, Helen Butler Wells is a good example of that. I don't know of any paintings that she made. She worked with just a pencil on paper okay. and had a really important seance circle in New York um, from between 1919 and 1940. And she was the primary instrument, um, as she referred to herself, through which the spirits came. And she would give messages, which were then you know, transcribed or written down by the folks in the seance circle and then published in over 160 books and pamphlets um, as education being given through Helen Butler Wells from those in spirit. Some of them are very famous people, but then also there were visitors from Saturn and Venus who came through her, uh, according mm -hmm. to Helen Butler Wells. Mm -hmm. But while she was doing that, she also made drawings. And the drawings are fascinating because they are Sometimes there's portraits of these sort of spirits, but mostly it's this organic interconnected vine work that becomes something else that has little like spirit faces and sometimes animal spirits. And then her name and the spirit of Eswald, who is her spirit guide, intertwined in there. They're really um, extraordinary drawings, but they, again, came out of that process and they were jointly produced while she was speaking these messages from a whole range of different kinds of spiritual teachers, I guess, is what you would call them. So, and we alluded to this earlier, um, more well-known artists that we don't look at them through this lens and Norman Rockwell, for example, and there's a paint, I think he did a painting of working at a Ouija board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Norman Rockwell's painting, unfortunately, isn't in the show though. It's reproduced. Okay. He, um, is, you know, there's a number of spirit, um, well, Ouija boards, uh, talking boards and devices for spirit contact in the exhibition. And it would have been great to be able to show the Rockwell with those because it just points out to painting from 1920 that was on the cover of um, the Saturday Evening Post. Was it that, really? Yeah, that, wow. that you know, it, the, the craze for using a Ouija board, uh, you know, it transcended its use in spiritualism and became something that a whole broad range of Americans were playing around with. Later, it gets demonized because Hollywood gets a hold of it and, you know, creates crazy, you know, suggestions of demonic uh, uh, possession through it, which is not really a thing. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, there's sort of an outrage about it. But it was at heart really a device to facilitate communication to your loved one who is in spirit and that it's on the cover of that magazine, which was very popular. And Norman Rockwell had, it, it had his attention. Um, 
you know, is really, uh, I think, important. But, you know, more more seriously, people like James McNeil Whistler, who your, you know, audience might know because of Whistler's mother, and he's just an incredibly important and popular artist in the history of American art. Uh, there's a full-length, beautiful portrait of a woman named Lady Archibald Campbell, who is in, who, it's in the exhibition. There's a whole essay about it in the book by an art historian named Rachel um, DeLue. And that's an instance where somebody who's well-known and is best known for a painting style that seems to push towards abstraction uh, and has been explained in lots of different ways, he himself talked a lot about how he was interested in spiritualism and the unseen. And he went to seances that were held by this person in her circle. Um, it was really all in on this idea that there is there are things in worlds that we aren't able to apprehend through our, our ordinary senses. And if we could just find the right device or open ourselves up in some way through meditation or whatever they might be, or being at a seance, we might be able to access that stuff. And he felt it was truly real. So the painting shows her, uh, again, full length, kind of looking down at the viewer and the edges of her outfit are kind of uh, alighting with a background. You know, she's sort of coming out of darkness. And I think it's, it's right to sort of point out that Whistler's experience of being in a darkened room with a medium, listening for these messages and having, you know, unusual things take place uh, affected the way he decided to depict her. And critics at the time picked up on it and thought she looked like an apparition. And I think it explains the way Whistler pushed towards, you know, uh, like pushed, pushed representation to the limits of legibility. I think it's because of that experience of being in the room and also seeing things out of the corner of his, of his eyes or feeling like something miraculous was happening. I think that explains his painting process more than this sort of mid 20th century notion that He's like a proto Jackson Pollock. I think Whistler was more interested in how did it feel in his body uh, to experience the feeling of being at the seance. And that's one of the things that he's trying to convey through, through paint. Another painting, and then um, we'll leave these famous artists, is Georgia O'Keeffe. And hers appeared different um, than the other ones because a number of the paintings in the exhibit are representational. Right. And hers is much more abstract. And I believe did her brother die in World War One? And through this painting, she's trying to depict his spirit. And it's a very abstract painting. Yeah. So I think that, you know, for the one of the things that the exhibition tries to do is to show that um, while the common wisdom has been for my field, that abstraction is the most appropriate way of showing an analogy to the intangible or the spiritual in art. There's been so many exhibitions about abstraction being the most appropriate manner of doing that. Most of the work in the show is by artists who are using a representational or a realist method in order to get you to see or feel or experience exactly what they saw 
that might not be in your experience, but they really want you to show they show you that they were witnesses to something that was tangible, that felt tangible, even though it might have been ephemeral. Um, and so that's the majority of what's in the exhibition to kind of counter that, you know, sort of overwhelming narrative. Um, unfortunately, though, Keith isn't in the show because it, it couldn't travel during the, the pandemic. Um, but I write about it. And you're right. It's a it's becomes a memorial picture to her brother who didn't die in the First World War, but he had gas wounds um, from experience, a gas attack that um, from chemical warfare that, you know, compromised his immune system and he suffered from for the rest of his life. And he died relatively young. Um, uh, and the O'Keefe painting is very much a memorial to him. And it seems to show his spirit and it seems to show that he's there, even though she's not doing a straightforward sort of portrait of him. But there's other artists like Henrietta Reese, um, who's represented in the ex exhibition or Agnes Pelton, who do use abstraction as a way to try to convey to the viewer, um, these are things that my senses were perceiving and I'm not exactly sure how to show you so here's what I'm resorting to, which is a kind of series of lights and shapes and imagery that felt real to them, but might seem like it's outside of the realm of tangibility to you. So then let's move on to what you term in the exhibition, plural universes. And artists, their real experiences with UFOs, extraterrestrials, multidimensional beings, and them trying to communicate their experience for the rest of us to be able to visualize what they saw. Right. Yeah. You know, when I was work, I, I started working on the exhibition in 2016, and I kept bumping into work of art works of art that were you know not science fiction illustrations or speculative sort of imagery about other worlds but work that artists claimed was about their own experience uh, experiences of you know visitors from other planets um and i wasn't sure how much of that material there would be or if if i could connect them in a way that would make sense but the spiritualists in the 19th century are already talking about where are the spirits? You know, if we don't believe in a kind of conventional heaven, um, where do the spirits go? You know, maybe because they aren't limited by the body anymore, they can travel between planets or they can leave the solar system. There was this continuity in talking about ethereal beings as being able to be not just sort of this concept of a spirit, but some kind of other species or, you know, kind of race of beings that came from somewhere else that we can't even sort of conceive of. So there's this continuity in that way. But in the 20th century, because of, you know, the whole sort of Cold War era uh, spike in sightings of UFOs and all sorts of things like that, you see a lot of artists in the second half of the 20th century making art about what they thought they saw or beings that they, they were visited by, um, those kinds of things. So again, it's important to sort of emphasize that in this show, that work is through the experience of the artists, their sort of firsthand witnessing of these things. And, um, you know, they try to visualize it. It ranges from, you know, 
the experience of UFOs to, as you mentioned, this interdimensional being that the Prophet Royal Robertson um, depicts. Uh, please share with us, like, what has been the reaction to the show? Like you being at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, what's been the reaction of the visitors to the museum? So it's been really good timing because, uh, you know, COVID numbers are very low now here in Minnesota. And so people are feeling comfortable coming back uh, to the museum to see a special exhibition. Uh, we hadn't had one really that was a big loan show since the beginning of the pandemic. And so um, the timing is right. There's high visitorship. People are coming uh, multiple times and they're also coming with in groups, like with, you know, with a partner, with a friend, with a, a handful of family members and having conversations in the space. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really struck a chord with people because there's lots of different ways in. You don't have to believe in any of this stuff to understand or empathize with the artists or get something out of what you're seeing. But I think for a lot of people, they've really craved this because it, it reinforces or validates the things that they've experienced and maybe don't feel like they're able to talk about or that people won't take them seriously, but is common to a, lots of communities and is just a part of human experience to be sort of having some degree of this kind of belief system. Do you think um, the exhibition of Hilma off Clint uh, that was in New York at the Guggenheim that I was fortunate enough to go to that, you know, we always considered, I'm an abstract artist, Kandinsky yeah. as the father of abstraction. And here's Hilma off Clint, a Swedish landscape artist that's very much in line with the spiritual artists that you've described yeah doing these massive and i think she might have done 500 paintings um through a, a multi-dimensional group of beings that she connected with right and when it was at the guggenheim that was the largest show in the museum history they extended the show extended right hours to accommodate everyone and mm -hmm. i'm not sure of the timing that may have been three or four years ago yeah so you think that awareness of hilma off clint helped make it um easier for this easier is not the right word but helped introduce these ideas that maybe um visitors can accept this more openly than maybe mm -hmm. before. I think so. I think there's always been an audience for this kind of material, but art museums have not really taken it seriously, or they've tried to aestheticize it or put some kind of, you know, more secular framework around how mm -hmm. we should really understand the work. And I think you couldn't do that with Helma Uckliffe because you had to take her biography and the kinds of things she said about the source of her inspiration and the source of her making the work seriously, if you were really going to understand where she was coming from. And that, I think that's really important is that artists need to take what artists say serious, uh, museums need to take what artists say seriously and really um, center that biography. And I think people are always interested in 
that aspect of of what makes an artist, you know, their story, their humanity. And so I think that part of the Hilma of Klimt, um, you know, uh, phenomenon was really critical. It wasn't just that they were these early abstract paintings. It was that there's this whole other dimension to the way she was talking about how they were made and what they meant. And that is true of the work in this exhibition. And so I think people are hungry for this kind of thing. And, um, you know, it, it may be that now museums are going to be, you know, more interested in this. I don't know, but I see this show, even though it is big, as kind of a first pass to just sort of admit the subject matter exists. It's been pervasive in American culture and we need to really kind of reckon with it and, and be excited about it because it is extraordinary material. And Bob, thank you so much for being a trailblazer and really curating the first museum show to take the paranormal and art and all we talked about to bring it to light in the museum. So thank you for all of your, in 2000, was it four years of work to orchestrate all of this? Yeah, about five years from inception to it opening at the Toledo Museum, our first museum on the tour. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing the awareness, which is really important. Thank you. And before we leave, can you share with our listeners one more time where they can find out more about the uh, exhibit and the exhibition uh, book? Sure. It's on view at the Minneapolis Institute until May 15th. Uh, there's a really strong web presence for this exhibition, including an audio guide that includes a number of voices, including voices of some of the living artists in the exhibition. And uh, so you can go to our website, uh, artsmia.org and find it, or you can um, pick up the book, which is The Supernatural in America, The Paranormal in American Art, co-published by the University of Chicago Press and the Minneapolis Institute. What a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for being with us, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Melinda. And listeners, thank you for joining us on the Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. Go now to superpowerexperts.com to unlock your superpowers and change your life today.